This morning our message will come from Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. These are the words of God. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Our gracious God and Father, we pray now by the Holy Spirit that you would open this word to us to give us understanding, O Lord, of the struggles and the pitfalls your people faced 2,000 years ago in the first century of the gospel, that we too, Lord, might walk with strength and wisdom and care and be your people, be strong witnesses, be beautiful witnesses to your glory and your gospel. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, next Sunday will be the first Sunday of Advent, and we will be starting our annual Advent series this year. We'll be looking at the Advent story from the Gospel of Matthew. But this morning, we're finishing up our little four-sermon series on inheriting the promises. It's really part of our Genesis series, but we've paused to look at the ramifications of the events of Abraham's life up through chapter 21 of Genesis. And this morning, we're fast-forwarding from Abraham's time to the first century, the time of Christ and the apostles and the first generation of the church. And we see Paul in our text dealing head-on with the ironic situation on the ground at that time because everything was upside down from what you would Expect. In verse 30, Paul says, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, in other words, they were not looking for right standing and a right relationship with the true and living God because they were clueless. They were without the law, they were without the other benefits of the covenant to guide them. But these Gentiles were nevertheless in the providence of God against all odds attaining to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, that is, faith in Jesus Christ. Now here, Paul is talking about the biblical doctrine of justification, because you see in the Greek the words righteous, righteousness, just, justified, justification, they're all from the same root word. And their meanings cluster tightly around the same central concept of a judge adjudicating an accused to be righteous. Thus, for example, in the Old Testament, God commands the judges of Israel to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. So justification was the opposite of condemnation. But when God justifies someone in toto, that is, in regard to their whole person and their whole life, he is adjudicating them not only not guilty of sin, he is also adjudicating them to be affirmatively 
righteous in the sum total of who they are, what they have said, and what they have done. He is adjudicating them in short to be like Jesus, the one man in history who always loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and always loved his neighbor as himself, even to the point of death on the cross, in trust and obedience to the Father, and for the sake of his brethren to save them. So how is it then that we can be adjudicated by God to be righteous like Jesus when in fact we are not? We in fact are the opposite. We are sinful and unrighteous in countless ways. Well, the way God accomplishes this is by sending his spirit to make us alive spiritually, to open our eyes to the truth, to change our hearts so that we respond to God rather than running away from him. And that spirit working faith within us, specifically faith in Jesus Christ. And through that faith, the spirit himself unites us to Christ so that we are one with him. The result is all that Christ is, all that he has done, and all that he has inherited from the Father are ours in Christ. So when God justifies us, adjudicating us righteous, he is giving us right standing before him as judge and king and a right relationship with him as father. For you see, God created us in the beginning not simply to be his subjects, but also to be his sons and daughters. And our unrighteousness going back to Adam is what destroyed that relationship. So once our right standing with God is restored in Christ, our right relationship with God as his sons and daughters is also restored. And that is how we move forward in the Christian life as sons and daughters of the living God in union with Christ. That's what Paul is saying of the Gentiles. Though they were not of themselves seeking this righteousness, they were not seeking God, they were not seeking a right relationship with him. Nevertheless, by the grace of God, through the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of Paul and others, they found the pearl of great price that they weren't even looking for. They found right standing and right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's part of the story that we read in the book of Acts. But Israel was a totally different story. Israel, even though she was a nation that was all about right standing and right relationship with God, and indeed that was part of her calling. It was supposed to be part of her identity. That's why she had all the covenant privileges. She had formal covenant membership. She had the covenant sign of circumcision. She had the covenant law given through Moses. And yet, the vast majority of Israel, and especially the upper crust and the leadership, were missing out on, indeed, turning away from right standing and right relationship with God. Why? That's the question Paul is answering in our text. And he tells us big picture two things. First, Israel stumbled over Jesus, the Messiah. 
the promised seed of Abraham. In other words, they were offended by him. He was a rock of offense and a stumbling stone. Verse 33, where Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. So they refused to give their allegiance to Jesus and to place their faith in him as Messiah. Indeed, they rejected him and arranged to have him crucified. And even afterwards, they persecuted his followers, all because Jesus was an offense to them. Second, Paul tells us that Israel was predisposed to be offended by Jesus because of their wrong approach to the law. That's verses 31 and 32. Israel's mindset and attitude toward the law were such that apart from a real change in that mindset and attitude, she was going to be offended at Jesus. Now this much, this big picture, we tend to get. But there are some vital details that we tend to miss concerning why Israel's approach to the law was wrong. That's what Paul is talking about in verses 31 and 32. Israel, listen carefully, pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. Now, we typically understand these verses to mean that law, the law and faith were in opposition to one another. They were two different roads heading in opposite directions. The law being the dead-end road of trying to earn right standing and right relationship with God by living a perfect life. Faith, on the other hand, is the good road of receiving right standing and right relationship with God as a gracious gift through faith in Jesus Christ, the promised seed of Abraham. And under this view, the problem was that Old Testament Israel was on the dead-end road of the law. And perhaps that God had even put her on that dead-end road of the law by design just to prove that it was a dead-end road, so that other people would not go down that road, but instead would see that now in the New Testament, we're on the right road of faith in Christ. Now, some variation of that view is probably the majority view of sincere evangelical believers today. It was the view that I was taught as a new Christian. And it is a view that one can certainly hold while being a genuine and good Christian. Having said that, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. And I think our failure to grasp precisely what Paul is saying, while it doesn't affect our salvation, it does affect our understanding of God's word and it leads to confusion. So what is Paul saying in verses 31 and 32? Well, I'm going to lay this out big picture, and then we'll go into the details. Big picture, what Paul is saying is that Israel did not just get Christ wrong. She got the law wrong and Christ wrong because they both required the faith of Abraham, 
which Israel largely lacked. Paul is saying that the law as given by God was the road that led not away from Christ, but to Christ. And not away from faith, but in faith. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, this is another verse that we tend to get wrong because of the word end. It makes it sound like it's saying the opposite of what it's saying. We typically interpret end to mean termination. But here, end is used in the sense of goal. We talked about ends and means. We mean a goal or a purpose. That's the way Paul is using it here. It's the Greek word telos. We get telescope from it because it visually takes you to your goal or destination. We get telephone from it because sonically it takes us to the one we want to talk to. We get teleology from it. But what is that? It's the study of goals or purposes. So Paul is saying Christ is the end, the goal or destination of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We tend to hear this verse of him saying, Christ is the death, the termination of the law for righteousness. In other words, trying to live a perfect life to earn your own righteousness for all those who believe. He's saying it's the goal, it's the destination of the law for righteousness to all who believe. So he's saying that is the road. So let's think about the law for a moment. When was the law given? The law was given some 50 days after Israel was redeemed and delivered from Egypt. What are the very first words of the law? Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. In other words, Israel's redemption, Israel's deliverance, Israel's salvation had already occurred before the law was ever given. The law had absolutely nothing to do with it. And it would have been clear to anybody who was there at the time. Who was this Lord your God who brought Israel out? Well, the New Testament makes it clear that it was Christ pre-incarnate. It was God the Son before He became the God-man in the person of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says that all the people who came out and followed God into the desert drank of that spiritual rock. He gave them water from the rock. And He said that rock was Christ. So what then was the crucial act that delivered Israel if it was not the law? Well, it was the death of the Passover lamb and the application of the blood to the doorpost of each house. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. The law had absolutely nothing to do with Israel's deliverance. The death of the Passover lamb, which was a picture of Christ, and the application of the blood by faith had everything to do with Israel's deliverance. Under the law, where do all the sacrifices point? Because there were sacrifices all the time. There were morning and evening sacrifices every single day. Their calendar started in the spring with the Passover feast. 
Their, their calendar ended in harvest time with the Day of Atonement. Constant sacrifices, and every single one of them was pointing forward to the death of Jesus Christ, the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. How many people in the history of the world have had their sins forgiven by the blood of a sheep or a bull or a goat? Exactly zero. No one has ever been forgiven of any sin by the death of an animal. Hebrews 10.12 But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14 By one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Everybody who has ever been saved and forgiven in the history of the world, though they may have been bringing an animal offering or sacrifice, it was faith looking through the lens of that offering forward to the promised seed, the promised seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, who would crush the head of the serpent, who we find out is the promised seed of Abraham in Genesis, who will come, who, like Isaac, will be born and conceived miraculously, not in the normal way, but by the power of the Spirit of God who will be offered up like Isaac later was on the altar and then received back as a picture of resurrection by that one, that seed, that promised seed. That is the faith looking through the lens of the sacrifice by which God forgave people in the Old Testament. So what was the purpose of all the moral and spiritual commands of the law? Well, according to Jesus, it was to teach redeemed Israel, already saved Israel, how to walk in light of that salvation by loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. Jesus says on those two love commands hangs the entire law and all the prophets. What was the purpose of the typological aspects of the law, such as the dietary code and the cleanness code about what you could touch and not touch? Well, the New Testament tells us it was to serve as the tutor of God's people when God's people as a whole were in their infancy to bring them to Christ. Galatians 3.24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the law, when we think about it, when we actually look at it in the Bible, it was the road and Christ was the destination for all who had the faith of Abraham. For all who had the faith of Abraham, the law was a road that was going to take them straight to Jesus Christ for salvation by faith. But for those who did not have the faith of Abraham, which sadly was most of Israel during most of her history, they mangled, misinterpreted, and misapplied the law just like the scribes and Pharisees did in Jesus' day. And that set them up to be offended by Christ and to reject Him instead of embracing Him 
and receiving Him and believing in Him. Look at verse 31 of our text. Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Now, typically, we read this verse as though Paul is saying, Israel, pursuing the law for righteousness, has not attained to righteousness. But that's not what he says. Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. They have not attained to the law itself. In other words, he is saying that because they approached the law apart from the the faith of Abraham, they never got what the law was really about. Why? Verse 32, because they did not seek it by faith. They did not even approach the law by faith. Israel as a whole did not approach it by faith, therefore she never got it. Now when Paul says Israel did not pursue the law by faith, he's not talking about general faith in the one true God. Israel had general faith in the one true God. She knew who the one true God was. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 2, Paul will say that they even had a zeal for the one true God, but he said it was not in accordance with knowledge. It was not in accordance with the revelation and instruction of God. What they lacked was the faith of Abraham, which was specifically in God's promises concerning the seed of Abraham to come, who is Jesus Christ. They did not have that faith, the faith of Abraham, and therefore they got the the law wrong, and that set them up to get Christ wrong. So that brings us then to the next question. If Israel did not approach the law with the faith of Abraham, how did she approach it? Verse 32, as it were by the works of the law. Now here we tend to get really confused because it sounds like Paul is contradicting himself. On the one hand, it sounds like he's saying in verse 31 that the law of righteousness required faith. But then on the other hand, in verse 32, it seems to say that the works of the law were opposed to faith. So what is going on here? Well, the confusion comes in because we assume that by works of the law, Paul means the deeds that the law actually contemplates and requires, which would be believe in the promised seed, love God, and love neighbor. But that's not what Paul here means by the works of the law. Notice the little phrase, as it were. Now, that's a single word in the Greek, but it's a Greek way for Paul to basically put scare quotes around works of the law. So when Paul is basically saying, as it were, by the works of the law. In other words, what they call the works of the law, which is wrong. That's what he's saying there. It's not what Paul would call the works of the law. Now, this ties in directly with Jesus's constant run-ins with the scribes and Pharisees as recorded in the Gospels. What did Jesus constantly accuse the scribes and Pharisees of? Perverting the law by adding stuff that the law did not require 
but which the scribes and Pharisees heaped upon the people and enforced upon them while at the same time emptying the law of what God really wanted. Look at Mark chapter 7 verse 2. Now when they, that is the scribes and Pharisees, saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. This doesn't have anything to do with cleanliness. This has to do with ritual defilement under the rules of scribes and Pharisees. So this is a ritual washing. He said, they do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. This is not coming from the law. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Now, why? Because in the marketplace, you see there's Gentiles. And they held that even being around Gentiles, you could accidentally touch a Gentile. You certainly couldn't eat with a Gentile. You're going to be defiled by in some way. And so you needed to have a ritual washing to be cleansed of that potential defilement. And he says in verse 4, And there are many other things which, uh, which they have received and hold, according to these traditions, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the scribes and Pharisees asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. That was the, as it were, works of the law. That's what Paul is talking about. This stuff, stuff that was not in the law, but which they took by traditions from the elders and then imposed on the people. Now, all these traditions also extended to things like not eating with Gentiles, not keeping company with Gentiles, lest they be inadvertently defiled. The apostle Peter expressed this to the Gentile centurion Cornelius and his family, to whom God had sent him to preach the gospel. Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Peter said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now, when Peter says it was unlawful for a Jewish man to keep company with a Gentile, he means unlawful according to the traditions held by the scribes and Pharisees. Because the law of God itself did not forbid eating or keeping company with Gentiles. In fact, in many occasions, it pretty much commanded it. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 10. You shall keep the Feast of Weeks. This is one of the major feasts that God commanded his people to keep. This is how he defined their calendar. So this is a great time of rejoicing. You shall keep the feasts of weeks, 
Who shall come? Verse 11. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger, literally the foreigner, the Gentile, the Gentile who is among you, the fatherless and the widow who are among you. He goes on to talk about the Feast of Tabernacles and he says the same thing. If you have a Gentile who is there living in the land, he is amongst you. You get him to the feast. Not only is it okay, God says you include them. You bring them. The only exception was the Passover feast because that was the Old Testament equivalent to the Lord's Supper. So the Passover feast required circumcision, just like the Lord's Supper requires baptism today. But our church potluck does not require baptism or a profession of faith. The Oktoberfest does not require baptism or a profession of faith. It is only the Lord's Supper. So it was the same way under the law that God gave, but it was not that way under the traditions which the scribes and Pharisees said that the law demanded. Similarly, regarding the worshiping of God with an offering at the tabernacle, the law gave welcome to the Gentile to worship God in the same way that an Israelite would. Look at Numbers chapter 15, verse 14. And listen how many times God makes the same point here to make sure that there's no mistake. Verse 14, if a stranger, a foreigner, they're not circumcised, they're not one of the Jews, if they dwell with you and would present an offering to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. That's one time. Verse 15, the ordinance shall be for you of the assembly... And for the stranger who dwells with you, he said, I'm sorry, one ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. That's twice he said it. As you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. That's three times he said it. One law shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. That's four times. Four times, four different ways saying the same thing to make sure there is no mistake about it. Yet by the time of Jesus and Paul, a Gentile could not present an offering to God at the temple. They had to stay in what was called the court of the Gentiles, which was not really part of the temple precinct. God never said anything in the law about a court of the Gentiles. He said a Gentile may present an offering the same way you do. But in the first century, they couldn't even come in to the actual temple precincts. So you see these traditions, which were not required by the law, and which involved deepening and widening the separation of Jews from Gentiles, to the scribes and Pharisees, this is how you showed you were a true Israelite, a true child of Abraham, a true follower of God. And so you see, the root of the problem was that the scribes and Pharisees had departed from God's example and pattern with Abraham, which is the prototype for all believers. 
Paul recounts that for us in Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 12. What does the scripture say? Paul is going back to Abraham. What did God do with Abraham? Because this is the prototype. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He's quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Verse 10, how then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Therefore, circumcision can have nothing to do with Abraham's righteousness by faith. Because he's counted righteous by faith when there is no circumcision. There is no formal covenant membership. And there is no law. Then he goes on to say, verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision. When was this? It was after he was already accounted righteous. How long after? Fourteen years. Fourteen years after he received circumcision. And it was a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he already had while uncircumcised. In other words, formal covenant membership and the sign of covenant membership were built on top of the foundation of righteousness, which was solely by faith in the promised seed. He goes on to say that he might be the father of all those who believe, whether they are circumcised or not. How are you a child of Abraham? By having the faith of Abraham in your heart, whether you're circumcised or not. If you have the faith of Abraham in your heart, you are a child of Abraham. That's what he's saying. How do you miss out on being a child of Abraham? You don't have the faith of Abraham in your heart. It doesn't matter whose blood you've got in your veins. That's why John the Baptist told the scribes and Pharisees, he said, don't begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father by blood. He said, it doesn't matter whose blood you've got in your veins if you don't have his faith in your heart. That's what matters. That is what always has mattered. Now, the reason why circumcision and uncircumcision did not count in this is you have to remember that in the Old Testament, God was dealing with the whole world, but he was dealing, he was doing it by primarily dealing with a single nation, the nation of Israel, because Christ had not yet come. And at that time, the distinction between circumcised and uncircumcised was not necessarily the distinction between saved and unsaved, between believer and unbeliever. There were saved believers who were circumcised and there were saved believers who were uncircumcised and who remained so their whole life. There were believers who were Gentiles who lived in Israel, who worshipped at the tabernacle, believed in the living God. There are brethren, we will see them in heaven one day, who were never circumcised and never had to keep the dietary code or the cleanness code of Israel. The distinction 
between circumcised and uncircumcised believers was between priestly believers and non-priestly believers. What does priest mean in the Hebrew? It simply means servant. A priest is a servant, a servant of God. The circumcised believers took on a special duty under the law to enact through typological means of the dietary code and the cleanness code certain spiritual principles that were important for Israel and the nations round about to understand. They were like the actors, like if you go to a place like Colonial Williamsburg, which is setting forth a certain life, and you can walk around as like a geographical stage. But you have actors who are there who are putting on this play, so to speak. They're displaying for you a certain life that is supposed to inspire you as to the values and the principles of that life. But those who take on the special duty of serving the audience in that way, well, there's special rules for them in terms of what they wear and, and the way their house and everything has to be set up. Everything has to, they have obligations that they bear that the audience does not bear. And here's the thing, if they get it, if they get what it's all about, if they get what that life is about, if they believe in that, they are happy to take on those obligations. It's a privilege. See, that's the way the Christian life is. If you get it, it's a privilege. And so for those who were believers in Israel taking on these obligations for the for their sakes and for the sake of the world to set forth the life of God pointing forward to the coming of Christ, that was all privilege. But here's the thing. If you don't get it, all of those burdens and privileges are going to start to wear on you. And you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to walk away from it all, say, I'm not having anything to do with this, or you're going to make them a point of pride. And you're going to say, righteousness with God is a matter of being one of the actors. It's all about the actors. What's hypocrisy mean? In the Greek language. Well, we think hypocrisy means saying one thing and doing another. That's one of the fruits of hypocrisy, but that's not the actual meaning. The meaning of the Greek word for hypocrisy, it was an acting term. It applied to actors, and what it meant was an actor who played to the chorus. Now, the chorus was an important part of ancient Greek plays. The chorus would narrate certain parts. The chorus would give the audience certain insights into what was going on in the play. But an actor is supposed to be putting on the play for the audience. A hypocrite was one who was playing to the other actors on the stage. It's about us. If you start to think it's about us, it's about our status, that's what gives us right relationship with God. You start to push the audience further and further back from the stage. It's about us versus them. And you start to push them further and further back. That's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. It's about our status. So the root of the problem with the scribes and Pharisees is they were trusting in their covenant membership and in their covenant privileges 
as being the foundation for their right standing and right relationship with God. They were saying that their righteousness, their right standing and right relationship with God was automatic by virtue of covenant membership, by virtue of covenant sign, by virtue of just having the law. It gave them that status. So when Jesus shows up and the apostles and John the Baptist and they're saying, no, it's always been about the faith of Abraham in the promised seed. That's always been the core. That's always been the foundation. Having covenant privileges does not give you righteousness with God. They're all given to you as servants to cultivate the faith of Abraham in the promised seed of Abraham. But if you take the things that are there to cultivate the faith in the promised seed and you start to trust in them, you've turned them into idols and you've taken them from being a blessing to being a curse. And that's exactly what they're doing. They were trusting in their covenant status. So Jesus shows up and they feel like he's stripping them of righteousness they already have. You see, the way they looked upon the promised seed and the promised Messiah was as a kind of a helping hand sort of savior, a great political leader, a great military leader who was going to reverse the fortunes of Israel and turn the tables on the Roman Empire and all these pagan nations that are in the Roman Empire. That kind of Savior they thought they needed and they were happy to receive. But you see, that Savior is icing on the cake. The foundation is our covenant status. That's what gives us righteousness. And that's why they're making such a big deal to make distinctions about those who have covenant privileges and those who do not. Because it was the difference between having righteousness and not. Being saved and not. But it never was. It was always salvation about the faith of Abraham in the promised seed of Abraham. And so they were willing to receive that kind of a Messiah who's going to give them that kind of political and military leadership. But a Messiah that comes that says, you have to die in my death and you have to rise in my resurrection because you don't need a helping hand. You need a Savior who's going to die for you and rise for you. You need a Savior crucified and risen because nothing else will do for you. Because, yes, Rome is a problem. But it is not the problem. The problem is you are a slave to Satan, sin, and death. That is the problem. And you have to be delivered and you are helpless. There is nothing you can do or anybody else born of Adam. There is nothing they can do about your problem. Every other blessing is downstream from that. So it all comes back to what kind of Savior do you need? Which comes back to what is our problem? Are we ailing and we're in need of a helping hand Savior? Help us out a little bit. Give us some political leadership. Well, yeah, we could use some political leadership, but that's downstream. Or is our problem that we are dead and helpless And we need a Savior who was born of God and not of Adam, who becomes one of us, lives the life we should have lived, 
lays down his life on the cross for our sins, rises from the dead in new glorified human life, ascends to the right hand of God, pours out his spirit to inhabit us and to give us his risen and glorified properties that we can be made in his image. What savior do we need? That's what it always comes back to. That was Cain's problem. He was offended at the idea that he couldn't just have a relationship with God. He was offended at the idea that he needed to present a blood sacrifice that is pointing forward to a Savior who has to die for him. That was Ishmael's problem. When Isaac is born, instead of seeing him as a type of Christ and having the faith of his father Abraham looking forward to the coming of Christ, the way Ishmael sees it is, I'm the firstborn here. I've been here for 13 years. This squirt just shows up, and then he's going to be the heir of the covenant. It's not about normal stuff. It's about miraculous birth. It's about God becoming one of us. You see, that's, that's the Esau's problem with Jacob. That's Joseph's brother's problem with Joseph. That's Saul's problem with David. All the way through, this is the stumbling block. This is the stumbling block that we're not just ailing and need a helping hand. We are dead. And we need to be born again from above. And that can only happen if God becomes one of us and goes to the cross. That's the offense. It's the offense of the cross. And so this is what Paul is saying. This is the fundamental issue. This is what Israel stumbled over because they were already trusting in their own covenant status rather than in the promised seed. So I hope this helps you for some things to come together in your understanding of the scriptures, that the law the law was not a wrong road, a dead-end road, that God deliberately set his people down just to prove that it was a dead-end road. No. Remember who it was who was giving them the law, Christ. So Christ sent his people down a dead-end road of trying to live a perfect life and earn their salvation? Really? Is that what we believe? No, that's not what the Bible teaches. It was a road leading to Christ, but if you didn't approach it with the faith of Abraham, you were never going to see it. You were going to garble it just like everything else in life. But thanks be to God, he has sent his son. We do have the Savior we need, crucified and risen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.